Rail Up, the future mobility podcast with innovators and leaders of the ecosystem. Presented by Sebastian Sperker. Our guest today is Serge Schumschuler from Transporion, one of the leading digital freight platforms in Europe. Our discussion centers around one of the most critical and timely topics, the mandatory reduction of CO2 emissions. Serge's extensive expertise allows us to delve into the impactful regulations affecting corporations in Europe and the global trade landscape. And we will hear why the impact is often underestimated by most stakeholders. In our conversation, we will explore the profound influence of these regulations on the transport sector, assessing their potentials for significant impact on rail freight in the short and in the long term, And we will be surprised that this sector follows a different rule set when it comes to CO2 pricing. Serge will also present strategies aimed at shifting more volumes from road to rail and critically assess whether we are on track to meet our ambitious climate targets. Live on the beautiful Greek island of Corfu. Welcome, Serge. Thank you, Sebastian. Good morning and uh, grateful to be here with you. I start my, my podcast always with the same question. Are you more a leader or are you more an innovator? Good question. Uh, who says no to a term which is uh, associated that positively? I do say no. I'm rather an accelerator of change. So neither nor. <laughs> I hope you can live with my answer. <laughs> Definitely. Our topic today, it's about CO2. And I would like to start our journey today by sharing with you a personal experience. In today's world, we frequently hear buzzwords addressing the climate change, terms like net zero, CSRD, ETS, taxonomy, ESG, and many, many more. And I often wonder how many people truly grasp the, the, the meanings behind these acronyms and their potential impact. To gain some insights, I started uh, in the last week a brief survey within my personal and professional circles, And the conclusion was rather straightforward and concerning. Almost none of them had a solid understanding of these topics, their interconnections and the potential implications for the economy and the planet. There were two points of clarity, the urgency and importance of addressing climate change. And then I asked myself, why is knowledge and understanding of such a crucial topic so unclear? Can you help us out and can you Give us an overview about these big topics. Long question uh, and uh, don't expect a short answer from me. Still, I try to do my best here. Uh, so first of all, uh, the good news is uh, my employer, Transporan, will, will issue in cooperation with Smart Freight Center and Accenture uh, Advisories a dictionary on uh, uh, sustainable uh, transport terms. So exactly some of the terms you, you have stated will be explained herein within a couple of weeks from now. It's not ready yet, uh, so just uh, keep your eyes open. And why is it so that we are flooded with all these terms? Um, yeah, because we are still in talking instead of doing. I tried today to avoid talking about the political point of view and commenting on politics, but it's a matter of fact that uh, If you look on different national governments and governmental bodies, there is relatively uh, slow and limited uh, action taking place. It's rather giving priority to new regulations all over the place. And uh, a good portion of the terms you, you named uh, have to do with regulations. And uh, 
just to comment on some of those. Uh, so European EU taxonomy regulation tries to classify activities uh, to which extent they are environmentally sustainable and aims at uh, impacting and reducing uh, green wishing and green washing uh, to that extent. Actually, that was a, a nice try. It didn't really bring us much forward from my point of view, but it probably has some reason for that. What is a bit more important is the CSRD. CSRD stands for Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. And that directive is highly underestimated by most enterprises. So uh, let me start, uh, first of all, what it is, and then as of which date will it become effective for which enterprises. Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive is an extended version of a previous non-fiscal reporting. Uh, this uh, report has to be issued in combination with the P&L and also the balance sheet of the companies. Today, only very large enterprises are required to submit such a non-financial uh, reporting. This is going to change. The large, very large enterprises are subject to this reporting directive already as of next year, but on a fiscal year level. That means at the moment they issue the balance sheet for 2024, which is typically taking place within the first months of, of the, the year following, so 2025. Uh, the corporate sustainability reporting needs to be issued as well. And then until 2026 fiscal year, even small enterprises listed at the financial markets are subject to this regulation. And then I'm often asked, uh, does that include uh, uh, scope three emissions? And does that include uh, emissions from transportation? In principle, yes, both of them, except some of those emissions were excessively marginal. Uh, if you run a tele-university or language training uh, and you have no transport uh, services, neither upstream nor downstream, well, then you do not have to report on those. Uh, if we talk about the timeline of the fiscal reporting, then we're talking getting the numbers together in the first quarter of the next year. But to get the right data, you need to start to monitor the figures already from day one, right? The real challenge here is not limited to what you say. You're perfectly right. Uh, so uh, people need to get data together. Uh, most companies have never occupied themselves with this kind of data. If you have ever tried to put a carbon footprint for a large enterprise together, you know what I mean. Uh, but then most companies haven't experienced that. I can tell you, in the first year, you will come to results which you might be able to use for reporting, but have very limited value. And the blind spot is much bigger than the area where you see clearly. Uh, and that is also because uh, you have three different scopes in emissions, scope one, scope two, and scope three. That's good. That's good. Because like uh, everyone is mixing up, I think, the scope. So yeah. yeah. Scope one is the emissions uh, a company... Uh, produces during its own production or services. Scope two is the emissions a company produces for in, in context with the purchase of energy they use for their own services that can include heating or, or uh, air condition as well for the offices. Scope three, these are emissions which are triggered by a company to on one hand bring uh, 
inbound material into the company and on the other hand bring their the products forward to the customers of the company so called upstream and downstream services and uh, now comes the, the the fun part to measure scope one emissions is relatively easy so are scope two emissions scope three emissions that is a real burden because you typically don't have any any direct contact to sensors because this whatever in transport we talk about vehicles are not owned by the company itself and the the fun element is these scope three emissions they do not account for an average company for five percent ten percent or twenty percent they account for eighty percent of the total average footprint of the average industries some industries deviate from that either higher or lower but on average it's eighty percent so eighty percent troubles twenty percent relatively easy stuff so and therefore you need to get some control over all these uh, numbers and granularity makes a huge difference, a huge difference. In transportation, I use the example of a highly established uh, way to measure greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, which is the GLEC framework, uh, just to picture that. And in the GLEC framework, you have more complicated um, efforts, uh, but the most easy, easy use case for calculating greenhouse gas emissions from freight is a full truck load. Uh, still within the GLEC framework, depending on the quality of the data you get. Even in the most simple use case, you have differences of up to 55%. 55% difference. And that is just worth nothing, right? Uh, you cannot make decisions based on, uh, on numbers where they might be right or wrong by 55% difference. This is uh, totally out of the picture. To bring the next point into, into the CSRD, it's not done by reporting where a company stands. It's not done. You, uh, it's also required to explain how the company is going to reduce uh, emissions over time and to demonstrate that the company is able to have uh, reduced emissions over the last years. And this is an additional burden which will fall on the companies. And I, I can't just say it is heavily underestimated. That's not only my personal opinion also confirmed by experts uh, in this business. Let's bring it to a little example to explain. So basically, if I'm a little car manufacturer, so if we talk about like the scope one, it's basically all the emissions um, uh, which are produced during um, uh, to setting the car, basically the manufacturer assemble the car together. So that's scope one. This I can measure because I have machinery, I know what is the consumption, um, um, etc. Scope two would then be in our example, like then wherever I uh, my electricity is 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 it's is coming from, like a green energy or for a nuclear power plant, which is also green nowadays, but also for fossil fuels. So that's the scopes two. So I can also easily measure because I know where the contracts which I have where the where the energy is coming to. But the scope three, it's basically everything about how the, pro the, the pre-products are manufactured, how to transport it to my production plant, how I transport the product somewhere else, and all the other stuff is basically scope three. Is that right in this uh, example? In a, in a simplified uh, way, we can absolutely say so. Perfect. So yeah. we, we try to be simple. And then also what you told us now is that, first of all, you have to start to report the scope one, two, and three emissions. And then you have also to justify how you reduce it or what's the plan to reduce it in the future. So, for example, like if I scope three and I transport like everything via truck, really? for example, then one measure could be that in the future I also transport a part of the truck via rail where the emissions are, for example, 
lower and this uh, information uh, and target I can put to my, my guidelines, to my reporting. Is that more or less the way how it should work? Yes, the burden is you need to underpin such a strategy by numbers. That means you need to occupy yourself with how much is in if I move that amount of my total transports to uh, rail or intermodal transport, for example. And you, you, you should be in the position to have an idea what that really brings to you. And then we fall back into the quality of the data and <laughs> one thing comes to the other. Uh, so that's, a, that's on the CSRD. Uh, the CSRD was just one of the, the, the terms you mentioned. And um, yeah, it's also worth to look at uh, another two out of those, uh, I don't know how many, I didn't count them, uh, which is uh, the CBAM. CBAM uh, stands for the uh, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. The CBAM has already started. Uh, there's an observation period in the CBAM where people have already to report. Uh, that has started 1st of October of this year. This uh, observation period where you don't have any consequences by charges or taxes terminates at uh, the end of 25. Uh, as of 2026, companies even need to pay for the consequences of the CBAM. What is the CBAM? The CBAM in a simplified way is all the emissions which are associated with products being imported into Europe from Asia or wheresoever, because uh, they are not uh, captured by the measures of the European Commission, but they are there. And uh, of course, Europe cannot make its own product more expensive because of carbon emissions, while they ignore uh, carbon emissions which are somehow imported into Europe. Also to give an example, not there. So still I'm the car manufacturer. So if I have semi-finished products coming from outside the European Union, then with the CBAM, what, what are we doing? We're just applying the same, um, let's say, approach and measurements to the product which are imported in order to have a playing level field uh, with the European product. So, or in other words, it's getting more complicated. You need more reports and it's getting probably more expensive to import goods from outside the European Union. And my question would be now, if we export like uh, goods, in a global scale, so is this also an advantage for other markets that we already have implementing such guidelines or is it very much an European subject? So first of all, as European, we always tend to believe that we are doing better than the rest of the planet. This is unfortunately a lie, it just sounds good. If we would see what efforts China, typically a company we used to blame in Europe, is making, how far Japan has progressed then we would uh, be very silent, to be honest. Uh, okay. However, uh, uh, with relation to other countries where there is no uh, greenhouse gas emission related taxation in place uh, and on transport, as of today, there is none in Europe still, uh, but that is going to change. Uh, that This could be a disadvantage, uh, of course, in terms of cost of exports, which can be actually balanced uh, by other, by other efforts. Uh, the goal must not be that we just increase taxation. We just need to shift. Absolutely. So that the overall taxation burden is completely uh, unchanged. However, the taxation has an important uh, reason to steer the direction of energies, etc., to use. So we can keep it cost neutral at the end of the day. A lot of people don't see that. Some people have good reasons to ignore that. 
But what also happens uh, based on CBAM and similar activities, we promote emission traveling. What does that mean? Companies who can prove that they have paid kind of taxation or charges for the emissions like in Asia, they can deduct these uh, charges from this CBAM, from the import. That means uh, actually it would even promote other countries to tax their emissions accordingly because we as Europeans would only tax the difference, the missing gap. Now, if there is a minus difference, I perfectly don't know what would happen. So like in the case where we charge less than, than China would be charging. Okay. But that's that's coming into effect. That was quite a mind game. So if Japan has a higher taxation on the whole uh, emission topic, then Japan would deduct like a high amount for importing the goods to Europe. Yeah, this deduction question is still open to me. Okay. That's what I've meant. But it could come on the table. At the moment, we, we have to see that we charge for excessive emissions. And uh, if we talk about transportation only, then we have to see clearly that uh, there was uh, since uh, many years already an ETS in place. ETS, that is the European Emission Trading System. That uh, ETS was not applicable to transportation. Okay. This is going to change. Uh, so the, there is an ETS 2, the second uh, updated version of the ETS, which will come into effect only as of 2027. So in uh, three and a half years from now. And this ETS 2 has even a so-called cap, so a maximum amount incorporated whenever the ETS shows a market-driven uh, compensation for emissions of a level above 45 euros per ton of CO2, then uh, companies still have to pay maximum 45 euros per ton of CO2, which converts into very little money for the transportation. So I don't expect, and it's not only me, also other experts expect, no steering effect from this exercise. This is basically just capped for, for the transportation sector or generally yes. in, no. the, in the ETS? That's the cap for transportation and the emissions for transportation will be charged at the point of sales, the uh, energy source. So at the gas station? Exactly. For example, a gas station. Uh, this cap is going to terminate. At the end of 2030, this cap will be gone. Maybe it will be prolonged by one or two years maximum. But in principle, the question is what happens after that cap. And uh, I think uh, companies are well advised to prepare for that point of time because experts expect uh, carbon emission taxation price coming from the ETS to in the 2030s between 100 euros and 300 euros per ton of CO2. And it's not certain if it couldn't even be much more than that. Uh, and how much is the price, the current price of a ton CO2 emission? As of today, I think I saw something like 80 euros per ton uh, in the ETS. Uh, all right. Today we have a price of 80 euros per ton and we could expect an increase as the, the certificates will be reduced in the timeline. One single sector which is a great exception as the CO2 prices is kept with 45 euros per ton for the next upcoming years. Uh, and this pricing will probably have not a huge effect. Uh, I, I just read that the additional cost for CO2 for one liter diesel is currently between six and eight cents. So that's actually less than the variation in, in, in a week. Precisely, precisely. And I think that was also the, the intention when this cap was, was made that uh, no one can really complain on it. Uh, if you convert that into a, a 
a rate per kilometer, which is quite usual uh, uh, for orientation in, in, in trucking, uh, then you end up with something between 5 and 10 cents, depending on the traffic lane, uh, per uh, kilometer. And that's, yeah, I wouldn't say completely neglectable, but within the typical variations you see from one year to the other. So nothing, nothing really uh, interesting to that extent. Okay, uh, although the transport sector will be integrated to the emissions trading system uh, by 2027, we will not see probably a significant boost for rail or a big change. Um, I mean, coming back to our little car manufacturer, uh, th this company will be much more stimulated to change the supply chain by the CSR directive rather than the, the, the ETS, at least as long as the CO2 prices are kept. Sebastian, I would very much like to oppose what you say. Unfortunately, you are totally right. If we look on the effect of these three major regulations, uh, the highest short-term impact uh, can be expected from the CSRD, which is a, a primarily uh, administration burden, uh, not only, but uh, primarily, and the starts the interaction between uh, suppliers and their customers on large scale. On midterms, the CBAM has an effect and will have an effect. Uh, on long term, the biggest effect will come from the ETS2 as soon as the cap is disappears, because then it's going to be hell expensive. And uh, the truth is that uh, so far, I do not see that the industry is going to be well prepared for that moment of time. Uh, Serge, can you give us uh, some insights of the role of rail when it comes to reduce CO2 in the supply chain, especially in comparison with the road? And what would a change of the transportation mode really helps companies to address the CO2 target, starting with CRSD, later on the CPM, and finally the ETCS as well? Will rail be one of the green game changer? As a global average or as a European average, we can actually argue that it is green and green does not is not limited to greenhouse gas emissions uh, uh, green is also uh, related to uh, yeah moving goods away from the roads uh, avoiding congestion and it's also related to other uh, non greenhouse gas emissions which are concerning uh, the health of the uh, population in Europe and and of course also on other continents good point eh? If we look into the detail, uh, we can really ask ourselves, is it so? So first of all, uh, only 60% of European rail is electrified. The, the remaining 40% are driven by diesel and other uh, engines. And we can be uh, certain that they don't have so attractive emissions. On the electrified 60%, a good portion is uh, electrified using electricity, which has been created by burning coal, which again is not so super attractive as it sounds in the first hand. So what we have in front of us uh, are also questions on empty load factor and empty trip factor, which both are not always to the favor of rail and intermodal transport. That means uh, to give a general answer, we don't know. We can do something about this, we don't know, and uh, this uh, Reminds me on Count Emissions EU, which is a chapter of the Greening Freight Package uh, launched by the European Commission July 11th of this year, which promotes the use of so-called primary data for greenhouse gas emission calculation. 
if we apply that principle uh, also for rail transport and also for road transport, where it's also not common today, uh, then we, we exactly see uh, the, the greenhouse gas emission performance of different rail and intermodal legs in real life and can make better decisions. And uh, yeah, my employer Transpoint has, has lined up with, uh, with a partner called Rail Cargo Group to put that primary data-based emission measurement in place still within this year. And everyone else who is in busy with this is invited to join that, uh, that initiative, a small detail aside. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so actually we, we don't want to make advertisements here, but anyway, yeah, I think it's a good initiative. But one point which I just would like to add what we already heard like several times like in the previous podcast with Matt, with Nathan and also with Stefan, um, the energy efficiency on rail is a much higher one depending on how you calculate between factor three and four. Yeah, every uh, figure we calculate depends from the parameters and assumptions we make. Correct. If we don't measure with primary data, everything is full of assumptions. Some of these assumptions might be well-founded, some are not that well-founded. The problem, again, lies in things like empty trip factor, for example. In some science-based uh, research, uh, uh, rail and intermodal transport are often associated with a very high empty trip factor. If that empty trip factor is ignored and not applied, then, of course, the result looks much better for rail and intermodal than if you apply it. And that's just one of the elements. To give a robust answer is not so easy. Uh, if we have a full train with no empty trip factor and an equivalent amount of products shipped by full trucks, which are driven with a ICE diesel engine, well, I, then I would agree. I just ask myself, how do you possess such expertise and insights in, into this subject? That answer goes back into the year 2002. I was an independent business consultant at that point of time and did my first project in logistics. And guess what it was? It was to help a, a, a larger European forwarder to introduce intermodal traffic in its road operations. They still do so, so I think it was quite successful. I was busy at that point of time with, uh, with programs like Marco Polo and other stuff. And uh, the downside of the whole thing is, on one hand, intermodal transport, yes, is at the bottom of my heart. On the other hand, I must say in all clarity, there is no modal shift. People talk a lot about modal shift. Uh, politicians, uh, policy advisors, and so on and so forth, companies, everyone doesn't get tired on promoting and talking about modal shift. It just doesn't take place, at least not in Europe. So it's it's rather a phantom than reality. If you look at rail, rail has, has lost volumes over these years, meaning since 2002. When I, I, I did my first project, I can easily compare the numbers. Rail lost volumes. Intermodal uh, transport did not lose volumes. Intermodal transport gained volumes. So I, I really think this is the future of rail transport to be intermodal for other reasons as well. Yep. Uh, but the gain of uh, volumes of intermodal transport was slower than the one from road transport. So even intermodal transport lost market share. And that, that is uh, something we really have to acknowledge. So far, modal shift hasn't taken place. And in all fairness, I do not see that modal shift is going to take place if we do not apply much more significant measures, which includes the European Commission's act different activities to promote uh, modal shift. 
now, now we're coming really to, to the point. I mean, there is some ambitious goals like to shift 30% um, um, from road to rail by, by 2030 uh, and we're currently by 20% and even like to have 50% by 2050. Does the initiatives of the CO2 emissions guidelines, yeah, does this help it in a way that we can reach the targets and do you think it's realistic to reach 30% model shift uh, like by 2030? You should never ask a closed question. <laughs> uh, I could simply answer, no, never ever. Okay. This is not going to happen. Never ever. Unfortunately, unfortunately, at the current pace, at the current, at the current pace, this cannot happen. And uh, if you just look at this year, for example, uh, intermodal transport lost 14% volumes, 14% volumes so far, as far as I know. Some years we even go back, uh, but no way. <laughs> okay, it was quite clear the answer. But what we need to change in order to get, for example, 30% by 2030. Or in other words, if you would be um, like the EU Commissioner for Transport, what would you do? No one who is on the whole topic looks at the customer. The customer, these are the shippers out there. A customer doesn't take place. If you look at funds, projects, even even IT-driven solution, every solution and also every set of data stays within this rail community. And in best case, it goes forward to the forwarder who is organizing uh, rail on behalf of someone else. But this information, this visibility, this data is not shared with the shipper. So the shipper sits in the blind spot. I was a vice chair in Ellis and we did some research on, on that topic. And when we asked the shippers, first of all, they said, uh, we see a major shortcoming if we use rail and intermodal on one hand compared to road transport, while the rail system does just doesn't see that at all. And uh, when we asked then the shippers, what is the main reason and uh, where do you see the biggest gap? The answer was the gap comes from the lack of integration in other supply chain solutions. Long story short, you know, if you look at real-time visibility on rail, if you look at granular data, you are blind as a shipper. And to work in blindness is not so super attractive, at least for a lot of products, it's not so. But the perception of the shippers, or like even reality, is the whole rail freight is more or less like an island solution of transportation and not as integrated as it should be. Yes, this is the downside, perfectly said. There is an upside which can give us hope, but we have to do more to make use of that hope. My employer, Transburn, has asked its 1,400 shippers who would like to move transports from road to intermodal, and uh, 0% said, no, I'm not going to do that. In total, 95% said, uh, very likely we want to do it, or likely we want to do that. So that's the upside. The second upside is we were then uh, Transparent was asking them, uh, what is the amount of volumes you would shift to intermodal transport, only intermodal, and uh, a weighted average of the answer gave us something like 15%. And you perfectly know, Sebastian, this is double of what is the market share of intermodal transport as of the, today. So that's the upside. I, I still owe you the answer on the question, what I would do if I were the commissioner for transport on behalf of the European Commission, and no, this is not my goal to get this job. But I can answer, I would flood these three islands. 
The first island, which I already referred to, is this island of the rail system, working in itself, where all the world ends at the terminal. You need to see that you integrate, fully integrate and allow the shipper to interact. The rail and intermodal transport get out of this status of being something extremely separate, but an integrated uh, solution. And that brings with itself a potential of increasing uh, moving transports from road to rail by approximately 40%. 40, 40. The second thing is, and that's connected with that, the data island. Make an end to the data island. If a shipper wants to have, uh, through a, a logistics platform, for example, data on what happens with his uh, transports on intermodal, he needs the approval of the forwarder he asked for. This is nonsense. Come on. We talk about not anybody else's data. We talk about data on its own shipment, right? So we need to encourage and enforce sharing of data in the system. And the third island is the national interest. The rail is still subject and also intermodal transport subject to national legislation and national uh, interest banning third parties to have a fair competition to some extent, not in a legal term, I'm not entitled to say so, but uh, I mean, just starting with the fact that a train driver needs to talk the language of the country the train is driving through. Have you seen that with an airplane? Can you imagine that to happen? No, no one can. But in rail, it's common. And that's one of the smallest burdens. And 85% of all cross-border trains are not booked from an end to an end, but turned into pieces. So this national interest is a, is a showstopper of an effective and efficient rail system. This is also one of the reasons why the rail infrastructure activities of the European Commission as part of the Greening Freight Package point into that direction to have a, a body which is coordinating that and I can only support that, uh, that activity. So that's, that's in, as short as I can the answer to your question. <laughs> That's really some good closing words. Your analysis is concerning on the one hand, but also encouraging on the other hand, as we see that the rail has now a tailwind from shippers and governmental bodies uh, to get more into focus and to be the green sustainable mode of transport. And in order to use the time, we know we already heard uh, in the previous podcast as well that we have to act. We need to integrate road and rail. And one essential point you stated uh, today We also have to share the data and we have to sync the entire supply chain. I learned a lot today and I'm sure our audience as well. So Serge, uh, thank you very much having you to rail up and warm greetings to your home office to the Greek islands of Corfu. <laughs> thank you so much, Sebastian. It was a pleasure to be with you. All the best. Very much looking forward to hear the podcast when it's ready. What is the contribution to drive climate change? It's not only one uh, measure, and that applies both for the logistics industry, but also for myself. Uh, I think the main impact, and I, I calculated that, the main impact on my end came from reducing the number of flights to an absolutely minimum. And I'm in parallel not trying to avoid using the car. So we had in our family three cars in the past. We are now down to one car, which uh, has proven to be sufficient. And even whenever I can, I use, believe it or not, the train. Uh, in particular, the night jet is a quite smart uh, way to move from uh, like Tyrol to Amsterdam and so on. Uh, so this year so far, I, I was able to limit my, my flights to one. There is a, a second flight uh, 
probably unavoidable uh, by uh, early December. So I will close this year with only two uh, two flights and no uh, cross-continental flight. That means I use home office, video and train in parallel to avoid uh, flights, which have a huge impact. 900 kilograms only on one single flight from Europe to New York, for example, for one person only. And uh, that also applies on me. The ball is in your court. What is the next step to drive change? I'm afraid uh, I'm pretty much through with what I can do. I could turn into a vegetarian. I have to say I have uh, limited the amount of meat, but I still can't avoid it completely. Maybe eating insects could be an alternative. But uh, with the measures myself, I'm very much through on a on a European, on a transportation and on a planet level, we have so many things we can do. If you look at the Ellis roadmap for uh, decarbonizing freight only, there are more than 30 different activities. And coming back to logistics, uh, I saw with my own eyes real numbers uh, from carriers which are able to operate the diesel uh, truck fleet with more than 20% savings compared to others using the same, the exactly same type of vehicles within the same geography for the same kind of transport, just because the drivers have undertaken uh, eco driver training. Uh, and this is a completely underestimated uh, measure. It's not the only one, which even saves costs. So no one has to complain on that. Which superhero do we need to avoid the climate disaster? The consumer has it. The consumer has it. Nine billion consumers can make a difference and can trigger action to the extent it's needed. Uh, of course, we have to do it. What's the takeaway from this episode? My takeaway from today's episode is that one of the most crucial topics, the mandatory reduction of CO2 emissions and the impact of corresponding regulations, remains unclear to many of us. Today, I learned that in the upcoming years, most companies will probably need to rethink the entire business model and supply chain as the impact is still unestimated. It starts today with the obligatory measuring and reporting of CO2 emissions for more and more companies addressing the CSR directive. This is followed by the ETS, which will unfold a significant impact when CO2 prices are expected to go over 300 euro. To create a level playing field for European products and services, the CBAM will integrate imports from outside Europe into the CO2 framework and has the potential to change the global supply chain. Furthermore, I was surprised to learn that Scope's re-emissions are representing approximately 80% of the emissions of an average company. Reporting these emissions by suppliers will be a great challenge. The golden rule could be applied here too. You need the right data in the right quality to be able to make the right decisions. Moreover, I learned that the transport sector will be integrated into the ETS by 2027. However, the cap price of 45 euro per ton of CO2 is unlikely to drive a significant change, at least for the moment. But once this cap is released, we will probably see a significant upheaval. We also heard today that there is already significant potential to shift more volumes from road to rail if you listen to the shippers. However, to make this model shift effective, the rail ecosystem must be seamlessly integrated into the entire supply chain. Otherwise, model shift will not progress beyond its current state. 
Above all, the paramount objective of these directives and efforts to reduce global CO2 emissions is to combat climate change and to ensure the preservation of a world worth living in. It's about safeguarding our planet and its future. Let's be part of the change and act. That's Rail Up. This podcast connects innovators and leaders worldwide to shape the future ecosystem of rail. Rail Up by Sebastian Sperker.